0: This morning I want to begin our time together by reading an excerpt from the book, The Valley of Vision, one of the uh, prayers recorded there. Uh, I, I regularly use this book to begin my quiet times, but uh, a few days ago I came across this particular prayer called Privileges, and I thought it would be a good way to start our service this morning. It says, O oh Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes." accompanies and follows my salvation, that it sustains and redeems my soul, that not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, and teaches me thy immeasurable love. So this view of grace is something that I think that um, relates very well to our text under consideration today. As you know, we are in Psalm 119. Today we're going to be looking at verses 38 and 39. And I want to uh, read those for you and then make a few comments as it relates to this uh, Puritan prayer that I've just read. Psalm 119, verse 38 and 39 says the following, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. More sermons have been preached, more books have been written on the subject of grace than any other subject in human history. God loves to bless his creation, especially his people, with grace, Now, you may think, what does Psalm 119, 38, and 39 have to do with grace? I didn't see the word there. I didn't hear grace in there. Well, I want to tell you about it this morning. If we could summarize today's sermon, I would summarize summarize it like this. God's faithfulness to his people results in the spreading of his glorious grace to more people. God's faithfulness to his people results in the spreading of his glorious grace to more and more people. Let's let's begin to unpack these verses and see how this works its way out. The first point in your bulletin reads the blessing of confirmation. I of course want to have you think of it in relation to the the grace that we see in confirmation. And so I want to I want to begin by helping you understand what the word confirm in verse 38 means the verse begins with confirm to your servant your promise so what is the meaning of the word confirm some translate some translations use the words establish reassure keep or fulfill many times when you're studying a bible verse and need a little help in understanding a particular word you can go to multiple translations and if it's an important word it will be translated in a few different ways and give you the nuances behind the meaning of the word that, that's the case here with the ESV's translation of the word confirm it means to reassure to establish to keep to fulfill the word of God is confirmed when God fulfills it to us if I were to promise to mow your lawn then I would confirm that promise to you by actually showing up and mowing your lawn You may have prayed prayers like this. God, you've promised to be with me through difficult times. Please do so. Then when you experience peace in the dark times, it's then when God has confirmed his promise to always be with you and never leave you. You may have prayed, God, you promised to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. Please do so. I pray this prayer regularly. God, please conform me to the image of your Son. I, I sometimes get weary of not seeing Christ's likeness in my actions or attitudes. And so I pray this prayer myself often. And then lo and behold, when, when I begin, or maybe when you begin to see character traits of Jesus forming in your life, you see more patience, more kindness, more love, those things that we see in Jesus, then we can say that God is confirming his promise to us to conform us to the image of His Son. God's Word is confirmed when it affects us. This is how God confirms His Word in relationship to us. When you read the Word of God or hear it preached, do you find yourself evaluating your life or changing an attitude or adjusting a practice? Are your prayers being answered? If so, God's Word is being confirmed to you. What is being confirmed? What is it that's being confirmed? And I've been speaking of it here already, so back to your outline. We're talking about the, the the gracious blessing of confirmation. We've seen the meaning of the word. Now let's look at what it is that's being confirmed. So back to verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise. Why does the author use the, the word your promise? Well, if you've been here during our our sermon series on Psalm one nineteen, you'll remember that the Psalmist uses eight to ten synonyms for the Bible or the scriptures, or God's Word. This is simply a synonym for all of God's word, your promise. He uses the word promise, not only to refer to all of Scripture, but he, his primary focus is on the great and precious promises of of God's word especially those promises that relate to God's work of sanctification in his people. God's promises to conform us to the image of Christ, to, to make us into the people that he would have us be. Do you have a particular promise from God's word that's meaningful to you? I know that I do. Um, I, I love Philippians 1, 6. Um, uh, ever since I've understood what that verse means, I've, I've returned to it many times. It says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. I am so encouraged by that promise because it tells me that God is going to fulfill his promises to me in making me someday to be like Jesus. What promises do you run to in your difficulty, and your hardships? What, what promises do you cling to uh, when you need to be encouraged Well, if you'll look back at this whole stanza, the Hay stanza, the fifth stanza of Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, you'll see that it's focused on the education that we receive from God in making us like Jesus. This is God's divine school of sanctification here recorded in verses 33 through 40. Verse 33, for example, begins with the plea to be taught. Verse 34, to to understand what is taught. Verse 35, to be led in the path of that teaching. Verse 36, to make us able and willing to follow that path. Verse 37, to keep us from being distracted by worthless things in this world that would lead us away from this path. You see, the psalmist desires God's education. And now asking in verse 38 and 39 that God would come through like he has promised to do. You know, we read in the New Testament that it is God's will that we be sanctified in 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul says this, after he has already mentioned that it is God's will that you be sanctified, he said, he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Yes, God has promised to sanctify us, his, that is his will for us, and that he will make sure it happens. That's what we see taking place in verses 33 through 40. This is God's school of sanctification, and the psalmist here is pleading for that to continue in his life. And you'll see, to follow our outline, to whom this promise is being confirmed. Do you see it there in verse 38? Confirm to your servant your promise. The one to whom this promise is being made is the servant of God. If there is such blessing in in having God's word confirmed to our hearts, um, and that promise or confirmation is given to God's servants, how do you know if you fit into that category? Do do you think that you are God's servant? And by the way, there's only one role in the king's court. It's the role of servant. There, There are no advisors, there are no consultants, if you will, in God's court, there are no court jesters, although it seems like there seems to be some who think that's their role. There are only servants in the king's court. But we are servants of God, not because he needs us to do things for him because he's unable, but because it's the only proper posture to take before the king of all creation. Paul made this point in his sermon in Acts 17. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us. We simply are servants in his court because that's the only proper posture that we can assume. But who is God's servant? If you're going to evaluate whether or not you are God's servant... How do you determine whether or not you are? How do you know? How are you serving Him might be a good question to ask. Let me just, let me just make some real basic observations here. If you were in Christ, if you are truly, genuinely in Christ, if He has given you a new and enlarged heart, you are His servant. Let me read you some confirming verses. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are no longer to live for ourselves. Being in Christ means that we are servants of Christ. Same kind of thing is mentioned in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You've heard this said before, we're saved to serve. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We'll return to that verse in a second. But are you doing good works? Where are you doing them? To whom are you doing them? How are you serving? If we are called servants of God, how is it that you are serving? You know, I want to make a a side point here, but I think it's an important one. The local church is, is God's um primary strategy for establishing his kingdom on earth. But the local church isn't the only place that you can serve God. You can serve God in your neighborhood, in your schools, in the community center, at the hospital, local boys and girls clubs. You can serve you can serve the Lord in any of those places. But primarily we ought to be serving in the church. This is this is God's plan. That the church is God's program are you serving God? Where? How? Are you a servant? Could these words be confirmed to you? Could you be included in the list of servants of God? A servant of God is one who's dedicated to God's use. And I think that's the focus of verse 38. Uh, it's, it's one who. who is consciously living as a servant of God, striving to please him in all that they do, all that they say, all that they think about. These these are servants who are aware of who owns them, as I spoke of in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Um, and, And those who live with an intentional awareness about that, not only are servants of God his creation physically but also spiritually we are we are twice his he knit us together in our mother's wombs and our mother's wombs as as David said in Psalm 139 we were bought with a price Uh, we've been redeemed by his blood he gave us new life and new hearts that have been made able and willing to serve him and so we should serve him now Christian servant how is God's word confirmed to us I think that God's Word is confirmed to us by an inward assurance of the Spirit that increases our faith. We are naturally weak in faith, and, and we demonstrate this by our fears and our multiple levels of precautions. We create all sorts of options and alternatives so that we don't have to rely on faith or, or on God's faithfulness. I think sometimes we make it hard to recognize when God is actually confirming a promise to us because we think that we can function just fine without him, and we strive to accomplish that. We, we wear spiritual belt and braces, if you will. This is an English term, belt and braces. It's the, the belt that goes around the waist and suspenders to make doubly sure that our pants don't fall down. Belt and braces, we, we make sure we have all the bases covered. We don't want any variables possible. We don't want to have to depend on God for things in our life. But as we mature as Christians, as we become more faithful in our service to our king, we grow in our understanding and experience of faith and God's faithfulness towards us. See, God's faithfulness to his promises are confirmed in our experiences. Jesus reminded the disciples of his faithfulness to them by reminding them of his provision of bread in an earlier miracle. Do you remember this from Matthew 16? Jesus said, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Jesus had to point them back to something he had already done for them in front of them. They saw his faithfulness then, and he was reminding them of it. What is it going to take for me to convince you that I am a faithful God? Paul also thought the same way. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, friends, our past experiences are confirmation of God's ongoing faithfulness to us today and tomorrow and the next day. If God has been faithful to you before, there's no reason to believe that his faithfulness will cease in the future. He is actively and presently fulfilling his promises to you. If he has been faithful to all his people throughout human history, then the chances are that his faithfulness will continue towards you even into the next life. What is the goal of having God's promises confirmed to us? Again, verse 38, confirm to your servant your promises. And then the verse ends with this clause, that you may be feared. So the reason that, that he's requesting confirmation of God's promises, so that God would be feared. What does this mean? Does God want us really truly to be afraid of him? Well, the phrase is the fear of the Lord is often used in scripture and often misunderstood in the world, even in the church. So let's dig into this a little bit. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Is this a servile type of fear that shakes our knees and brings horror to us when we're in the presence of God? I don't, I'm not convinced of that. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. This doesn't sound like... Something based on groveling fear? That's not how I would interpret that. We, we know, of course, that Isaiah and the Apostle John and Moses were all in the presence of God, and it caused them to have some physical reactions, right? Their knees shook, their, their legs gave out up from underneath them, and, and John laid on the ground as though dead, he said. But is this the kind of fear referred to here in verse 38, and in most other places in the Bible when the fear of the Lord is mentioned? Well, I believe the concise answer to what the fear of the Lord means is this, having a proper regard for God. It includes a holy reverence and a serious towards God, of course, which seems to be missing in so many places today. Um, a fear of the Lord, of course, doesn't respond to God as the old man upstairs or my celestial buddy. Unfortunately... We, we hear that far too often. But at the same time, the fear of the Lord isn't just quiet, solemn, and, and grim, and gloomy disposition. No. When we read David's psalms, we, we read that fearing the Lord includes singing and clapping and shouting and dancing, playing instruments, rejoicing, and even having a smile on your face. It says the fear of the Lord results in a lifted up countenance. That means a smile on your face. So having a facial expression that looks like you've been weaned on a dill pickle is not a sign of holiness. If the fear of the Lord is having a proper regard for God, then we need to view him as Scripture presents him. Yes, he is just, he's holy, and he's perfect, but also... He's patient, he's kind, he's loving, he's good, and supremely happy. I think these qualities are the ones that prompted the Apostle Paul to call God, Abba, Father, Daddy. This is is not a servile, groveling fear that Paul had for his heavenly Father, nor that I think the psalmist has for him. I want to make mention of one more thing here that I think is important. After studying and praying over this verse, verses verses 38 and 39 of Psalm 119, I also believe that there is an evangelistic passion on display here. When God confirms his promises to his people, it results in the spread of his loving kindness and gracious goodness to many. When God shows himself to be faithful to me, it has an evangelistic effect on my unsaved family, friends, and neighbors. This, this I think, will come into clear focus in verse 39. So let's move to that verse, and, and let's see how God's grace is even seen in reproach. Verse 39 reads, Turn the reproach that I dread, or turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. In your outline, I've noted that Point number two is the curse of reproach. But I want you to to think of it in these terms, the grace of reproach. Verse verse, verse 39 emphasizes the the fear of being a divine school dropout. The the author does not want to uh, have anything in the way of his sanctifying processes, of, of him being taught and understood and walking in the path of his commandments and having an inclined heart to his testimonies and keeping away from worthless things. He doesn't want anything to interrupt his relationship with God or his pursuit of godliness and holiness. And so uh, he, he says, turn the reproach that I dread away, for your rules are good. So what is, what is reproach? Reproach is to find fault or to, to blame. It's to be the cause of blame or shame or discredit So what is it that the reproach that the author dreads? What what kind of reproach is he um, trying to avoid? And I think there's two possible answers. One is the reproach of God. The writer could be concerned with the reproach of God because of his own sin. If this is our interpretation, the author's fear is that his disobedience will cause a rift between him and God. God will, will reproach him. It will will discredit him, will blame him for his sin and cause a relational um, separation from himself and his God. This is, I think, a a real concern for any true believer. We don't want to act in such a way that we bring sorrow to God's heart. We don't want our thoughts or actions to create a barrier between us and God because we know that the practice of sin in our lives brings about relational barriers that cause problems with God. That's one possible interpretation of verse 39. He dreads the reproach of God. The second is the reproach of man. And I think there's two ways within this second um, interpretational option that we can view this. The reproach of man. This could mean that that this disgrace is, is actually from sinners. Sinners, because of our own faithfulness, Reproach us because we've decided to follow the path of holiness and godliness. The world rejects us. This is the kind of treatment that he spoke of in, in the third stanza when he spoke of being scorned and alienated and ostracized. That, that's, that's common. We, we know that this is the case. But if you, if you consistently follow God, you can expect this kind of mistreatment from the world. If you're a Christian, Jesus said to expect it. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they all warned us that if we're going to be in pursuit of holiness, we can expect a certain kind of treatment from the world to be reproached. But I don't think this is the kind of reproach that the author of Psalms 119 is talking about. Because that kind of reproach is actually a badge of honor to the Christian, as we realize when we read Acts chapter 5, verse 41. As then Peter and John left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name or suffer reproach for the name of Christ. We also see the same thing from Peter's pen in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you and tests you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now listen, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory, and of glory of God rests on you. You see, that kind of reproach from man isn't something to be feared or dreaded, which the author of Psalm 119 says he is doing. So it can't be that kind of reproach. I think, rather, the kind of reproach that he's referring to is the kind that's leveled against God from sinful man similarly to how the old testament gentiles would laugh at god and shame god and revile god because of the behavior of the israelites it's the same kind of reproach that's leveled against god for the poor living of professing christians today how many have rejected god because of the poor behavior of those claiming christ I think this is more likely the kind of reproach that the psalmist feared. In either case, the danger is the same. It's the danger of interrupting God's education and his school of sanctification because of our sin. In one case, God's name is shamed by unbelievers because of our sin. In the other case, because we have offended God. Either way, that is a reproach that the author dreads. And reproach, of course, is a curse. But I want to show you how re- this reproach is also gracious. Because he says that he dreads it. So I would say this as much as reproach is a curse, the fear of reproach is a blessing. As much as fire can be a curse, the fear of fire is a blessing. The, the author doesn't want reproach in his life at all. He fears it, he dreads it. Why? Well look at the end of verse 39. He tells us why. He says, "I don't want I I dread this reproach why? Because your rules are actually good." And why are God's rules good? Because God is good. Whenever someone has a misconception of God, it's because of sin. If people think that God is unfair, it's because of sin. If people think that God is unloving, it's because of personal sin or sinful and loving people who are claiming to be Christians. Friends, we should never give anyone a reason to reproach God, to misunderstand God, or to reject Him. We should endeavor to refrain from any ungodly action or attitude that would bring shame to the name of Christ. Why? Because He's good. (laughs) He's good. And we're to be ambassadors of this good king. We're ambassadors for Christ, Paul said. And we want to represent him well to those who need him. Paul saw his ministry primarily focused on reconciling sinful people to a holy God. His whole apostolic ministry was preaching the loving forgiveness of Jesus the Savior to desperately lost people. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who's the us he's speaking of? I think he's speaking of all Christians. Everyone who's embraced Christ, everyone who is a servant of the King. We have been given one goal, one objective. To be ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. Paul continues in chapter 20. I mean chapter five, verse 20. See, our, our lives should be focused on the same thing that the Apostle Paul was focused on. And this is what it was focused on: serving God by clearly presenting Jesus Christ on the platform of a holy life. Friends, is, is that what your life is about? Are you a servant of God, an ambassador of Christ, who is clearly presenting Him on a platform of a holy life? This, this should be the case for us. I believe that verses verse 38 in Psalm 119, it's pleased that God would confirm His promises in the life of the psalmist, so that his life would be a sweet fragrance to those around him. If God would confirm his promises, not only will I have a proper regard for God, a proper fear of God, but also those who are in my life will have the same. You see, God's faithfulness results in the spreading of his glorious grace to others. God's faithfulness to you and to me, God's Confirming of his gracious promises to you and to me results in a proper regard for who God is. And when I have a proper regard for who God is, when you have a proper understanding and regard for who God is, it infects the people around you. They see the grace of Christ in the same light that you do. God blesses his creation through his people. Confirm to your servant your promises so that people will have a proper regard for you. Turn me away from reproach because you are good. This is the prayer of Psalm 119, verses 38 and 39. This is my prayer for a Sun Valley church. Oh God, do this for us. Pray with me.